Well, class, we'll go ahead and get started here. For those who are late, they are late. Uh, last night, a number of you I got to see at the Pregnancy Center fundraiser dinner. That was an excellent speaker there last night. So if you're learning about public speaking, you could learn a few things from what you saw last night. And one of the things he did a great job was of repeating his main point. And so for those of you that were there, let's uh, give you a little test this morning. A patient is a, a patient no matter how small. A person. A person. Yeah, a patient is a person no matter how small. And so when he started talking last night, he was saying that I'm going to give you some tools that you'll be able to use in the the culture war, the spiritual war for the unborn, the lives of the unborn. And I thought, uh, you know, people have tried to give me tools before. I probably won't remember. I can't remember what sled is and size and I don't remember what the other ones are. So I wasn't real hopeful that I'd be able to remember. But then he repeated it so often that it stuck in my head. And also he gave great illustrations to go along with what he was talking about. So when you're saying a patient is a person, no matter how small, he gave examples of patients that medical doctors and surgeons are able to operate on in the womb that one of the amazing things that they're doing is they can actually do open heart surgery on an infant in the womb and so if they can do a surgery on the baby's heart in the womb and then that's a patient and a patient is a person no matter how small and so it's great to be able to have examples like that to be able to say to friends, co-workers, neighbors, uh, students, and anybody that you might get into a conversation with on the subject, and be able to point out, well, did you know that they can do open heart surgery on a baby in the womb? And a patient is a person, no matter how small. So that's a great tool that you have to help change people's minds. And uh, he's a, a medical doctor, an OBGYN, who has got his own practice and then travels and speaks. And he was at University of Florida or something like that and speaking to the medical students there and actually changing minds uh, about the, the unborn being a patient and therefore being a person no matter how small. Alright, so just wanted to uh, give some, some good press for the Pregnancy Center in Lincoln and every year they have a fundraising dinner. You can check out their website, Pregnancy Center Volunteers and find out information on that each year. A great ministry, so I always like to promote it. Alright, so this morning we see that I've got up here the quote from Michael Faraday. And I want you guys to really get this, much like a patient is a person no matter how small. I keep coming back to this and you probably won't be able to memorize this, I can't memorize it. But you should get the idea in your heart. And this is such an important idea, that's why I keep bringing it to you. And I was reminded of how important this idea was this last week. Because I'm studying in Mark chapter 16. So open up your Bibles to Mark 16 if you brought it with you there. Mark 16. And so I was watching this video by Mike Winger. And he put like 150 hours of research into studying this problem in Mark chapter 16. Uh, 150 hours of research, how many days is that? <laughs> if, you're, if you're working at a 10 hour day. That's 15 days of 10-hour days doing research on just this one problem here in the Gospel of Mark. And so I appreciated his video. He did a great job. He did a very objective and balanced. 
And one of the things I wanted to point out to you that's on my mind and goes along with this quote and ties in with our hermeneutics book that we're learning about Bible interpretation is that when we're talking about self-education, and there's nothing more important in your self-education than your theological education, okay? Your theological education is going to determine who you are as a person in relationship to God as a person. And that's the most foundational, the most important relationship that you have. It's the very core of your identity. Nothing more important about you than your relationship with God, your knowledge of God. And so self-education in theology, your theological education, is the most important part of everyday life. But Faraday, he's speaking here on uh, particularly natural philosophy, which is what? Science. Science. Natural philosophy is the old way of talking about science. Because philosophy used to be a much more used term, and philosophy's kind of died. And you can know about how philosophy died from our study in How Should We Then Live? That when the philosophers killed God, they basically killed themselves as well, and they killed philosophy. So philosophy dies, so we don't really use that word anymore. And now we're philosophical naturalists. We believe the physical world is all there is, all there ever was, or all there ever will be. And so natural philosophy is not a term we use because philosophy is dead. So we just talk about science. And science becomes co-terminal with philosophical materialism. And when people say it's scientific, what they're really saying is, that this is according to our worldview, that there is no such thing as a spirit, there is no such thing as God, and that people are just machines. That's, that's what they call science uh, in the world. And if you think differently, and you have a different worldview, and you believe that people are not just machines, and that there is objective moral ethics, and that there is a God who's created the world, well then you're not scientific, according to the philosophical naturalists. Alright, all that's review. Uh, and I'm getting my point here, that when it comes to your self-education, and here we're talking about your theological education, you need to teach your mind to resist its desires and inclinations until they are proved to be right. And proved to be right according to justice, according to what is right, according to what is fair. So often people think, oh, I'm a just person, I'm a fair person, I treat people right, you know, I don't lie, and I don't murder, and I don't steal, and I, uh, you know, keep the Ten Commandments. And you don't realize how much you do lie and steal and have false uh, witness because you are unconscious of so much of the evil that you do. Now, I'm not just picking on you, I'm picking on guys like me because... Mike Winger, he pointed out, as I was talking about his 150 hours of studying this problem in Mark chapter 16, that as he was reading, you know, books and articles and doing all the research, he was getting so frustrated because none of the authors, and I might be overstating a little bit, but so often the authors who are writing on the subjects, like this one, they have unequal weights and measures. God hates unequal weights and measures. What do I mean by that? Well, let's talk in the physical world. You go down to the store to buy a pound of flour, okay? Back in the old days, they'd have this big barrel of flour. And then you'd say, well, I want, you know, two pounds of flour. And they'd bring out their, wet, their measure, their weight. And they'd, they'd pull out, here's two pounds of flour. Now, unequal weights and measures is that you have one weight for buying and you have one weight for selling. 
And the, when you're buying, you have the, the big bucket that is a little bit more than a pound. And when you're selling, you have the little bucket, which is a little bit less than a pound, so that you're always advantaging yourself. And this is what people did uh, before, you know, there's quite so many laws in place and oversight to prevent people from the unequal weights and measures. And so when God was speaking to the Israelites, he told them, I hate unequal weights and measures. Just that little bit of theft when I'm buying and that little bit of theft when I'm selling, it adds up over time and God hates that. Well, that's what we do intellectually. Because when it comes to understanding a difficult thorny issue, a difficult thorny problem, what we as sinners do is we decide what we want, uh, what, what benefits us. And we're, uh, we're not resisting our desires and our inclinations, but instead, when we're weighing the evidence, we put more weight on the evidence that supports what we want, and we put less weight on the evidence that goes against what we want. And so we have our own bias, we have our own predetermined ideas of where we want the information to lead us, and then our mind, without even knowing it, tricks us into unequal weights and measures. And when somebody comes objectively to the, the question, and they're reading this person, and they're reading that person, then it becomes more obvious, this unequal weights and measures. But if you come to the issue, and you've already got a, a predisposition towards one position or the other, because this is what my group thinks, or this is what's going to make my life easier, or something along those lines, or this is what fits in with my other preconceptions, and I don't really want to have to rethink everything, I just want to be confirmed in what I already believe. And you come, and you're going to listen to the guy who is using the unequal weights and measures that fits with your view. You'll be like, oh, I like what this guy says. I think he's analyzing it right, but he's not. He's, he's not treating fairly the evidence that is against his position, and he's bolstering and helping the evidence that is for his position, and he's not being just. He's not being fair. And this happens all the time among the best of us. He's not reading from ungodly men who hate the scriptures, who don't know God. Mike Winger was reading from pastors and theologians and seminary teachers, godly men who live godly lives, and yet they can't overcome the temptation to use unequal weights and measures when it comes to evaluating evidence, weighing the evidence. It's so important that you learn how to weigh evidence and to do so equally and fairly. And that's what Faraday's talking about. If you're going to grow in your self-education, then you must train, you must teach your mind to resist its desires and inclinations so that you don't use unequal weights and measures in intellectual pursuits and that you evaluate evidence fairly. Now, what am I talking about? Mark chapter 16. Take a look at it. You get to Mark chapter 16, verse 8, and it says this. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, what comes next? Well, I'm using the English Standard Version. And what comes next in the English Standard Version is a bracket that says, in small caps, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. What does that mean? Well, our 
knowledge of the Bible comes from thousands of manuscripts, handwritten, manu, hand, script, writing. Handwritten copies of the originals. We don't have the originals of the Gospel of Mark or any other book of the Bible. We have copies from usually hundreds of years later. And we have thousands of them, but most of the ones that we have come much later. Because the printing press wasn't invented until what century? What's that? Yeah, I think the 15th century, right? And so we got 1,500 years from the time of the writings until the invention of the printing press. And we don't have very many copies from this, the first century when they were written or the second century. There was a lot of persecution. A lot of the copies got destroyed. And also they're older, so they just wear out more. So a lot of our copies, our earliest copies, come from like the 4th and the 5th century, but we don't have a lot of them from that time period. But we've got a whole lot of copies from the 11th and 12th and 13th and 14th centuries, thousands and thousands. And so when it comes to Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, the problem is, is that when you get to those earliest copies that we have, and some of the best earliest copies, that it doesn't have those verses in it. It just ends at Mark chapter 16, verse 8. And as you're reading through the Gospel of Mark and you get to Mark 16, 8, it doesn't really seem like an ending. It seems like it just stops and that there's some kind of missing ending. And so why would these early manuscripts just end there? Well, the problem gets thornier and more difficult when you start to look into what was written in the early church about the ending of Mark. Because... We don't, we don't only have the, the copies of the Gospel of Mark, we also have the writings of the church fathers. And so some of the early church fathers, I'm talking in fourth, fifth century, they, they talked about the ending of Mark. And one of them, Eusebius, a church historian, he said that in his time, that all of the, basically all of the Greek manuscripts and all of the old manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark ended at chapter 16, verse 8. So even though we only have a couple of them from that time period, we know from Eusebius' writings that this is, this is what was true of basically all the ones that he knew about. And he said just a, a few editions uh, have verses 9 through 20. And also other early writers said the same thing. And so it seems pretty clear that for the first few hundred years of the church, Mark 16 ended at verse 8. And then over time, verses 9 through 20 became more and more a part of the text until, well, basically like 99% of all the manuscripts we have, have it in there. But we can tell from the few manuscripts that don't have it, and from translations into other language and quotations from the church fathers, that it wasn't a part of the text originally. And so then you have to try to decide. Well, if it wasn't there originally, does that mean that verses 9 through 20 don't belong in our Bible? And what the ESV does is it puts it in, uh, well, it puts, okay, verses 9 through 11 in brackets, and then verses 12 through 20, uh, it also kind of continues in brackets. You've got double brackets there. And so with the note and the brackets, it's saying, well, this is probably not an original part of the text, but we're including it here because maybe it should be here. And that's kind of the way it is with Mark chapter 16. It's a maybe it should be here, maybe it shouldn't be here. And so I'm preaching through the Gospel of Mark and I have to decide, how am I gonna preach these verses? And do I preach these verses? 
And how do I present the Gospel of Mark? Do I present it as, well, Mark intended it to end at chapter 16, verse 8? Or do I say, well, no, Mark intended for verses 9 through 20 to be the ending of the Gospel? And different Christians take different positions on this big textual issue. Now, there's lots of little textual issues in the Bible. This is probably the biggest one because it involves this, this whole paragraphs at the end of the Gospel. And then it, it affects your interpretation of how the gospel is supposed to end. And so that's what I'm working through. And that's where you see this unequal weights and measures by the guys who are writing on it. And it's difficult for them to resist their desires and inclinations. And it's difficult for them to treat fairly the weight of the evidence that is against their position, both sides. I'm not just talking about one side of the debate here. Both sides have a hard time putting equal weight to the arguments that support their conclusion as putting equal weight to the arguments that are against. What do I mean by that? I mean that they'll, they'll kind of steel man their own arguments and straw man the false arguments. And they, they don't mean to do it so much, it just kind of happens. And so, very important that as you guys are learning how to interpret the Bible from our Bible interpretation book, that you develop this mindset, you develop this distrust of your own self, and that you're always examining yourself to see, am I really treating fairly the other side of the argument? The golden rule goes a long way. What's the golden rule? Treat others the way that you want to be treated. So you're in a discussion, you're in a debate with someone, you don't want them to use unequal weights and measures against your position. And so you shouldn't use unequal weights and measures against their position. This is just part of being a Christian. This is part of being intellectually honest. Are we talking about parking? Is that our problem? Yeah, have you, have you made a rule that they can't park in front of the church? No, I have not. Okay, that, that, I'm sorry, that should have been something that I asked you to set up. It's a problem every now and then. Do they need into the shed this morning? Oh, yeah. All right, so if you park in front of the shed, would you please move? Yeah, it, it probably, we do need to set up, don't park their rule, because it's a bad Well, uh, I'm not in charge of the whole co-op. I'm in charge of my class, and I haven't decided to make it a rule yet. I'm willing to ask guys they to... They have asked. They have asked uh -huh. us to make it a rule. Okay. Since they've asked us to make it a rule, but that's what I'm relaying. Uh-huh. Well, thank you for relaying. Yeah. Um... So, where was I? You were about the, golden the golden rule, thank you. So, the golden rule is in, applies to intellectual honesty as well as economic honesty. And in fact, it might even be more important to be intellectually honest than to be financially or economically honest. And there's so much misunderstanding, there's so much miseducation, there's so much a lack of progress in knowledge and truth because of our injustice in how we treat the other side of the argument and how we uh, unfairly weigh the evidence that is in favor of whatever position we want to promote. So this, I just can't overemphasize how important this is for you in your education. All right, you're not gonna make great progress as a thinker, you're not going to contribute to knowledge and wisdom and understanding unless you learn how to do this. The most important principle uh, 
the most important of all. Right there, that's what I was looking for. This, this whole idea is the most important of all. Not only in things of science, but in every department of daily life, including the most important subject of theology. Alright, so, today we're going to talk about Bible interpretation. So go ahead and open up your study to show yourself approved booklet and exam. We're at chapter 10, and the first five questions in our exam cover the first principle that we've covered in class. The last five questions cover the last five. And I wanted to see, show you again the chart for hermeneutics. Repetition is the key to learning. And this is a really good chart to give you a, a, a view, an overview of how to understand the Word of God. Understanding the Word of God. Understanding human words is important. You can't get very far in life if you don't understand what people are saying. Well, understanding God's Word is the most important thing of all. And so, we have here the pure Word of God. It's kept from error through the walls of the well. Because in our history, in our culture, there's all kinds of error. All kinds of mistakes, all kinds of lies, all kinds of deception. All kinds of problems out here in the history and the culture. And if you don't have the Word of God, all you have is history and culture where everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Everyone goes along with their group and all the groups fight and war with one another and might makes right. That's, that's the world apart from God's Word. But with God's Word, you've got truth. You've got something that you can base your thinking on, your life on, your society on, your family on. And so, getting God's Word pure and unmixed is the goal of hermeneutics and exegesis. So, hermeneutics here is the rope by which exegesis is done. Exegesis is drawing the meaning of God's Word out. Because God's words is, are tested. God's words are pure. God's words are proven. They're more valuable than gold or silver. And nothing that you desire compares with having the wisdom that comes from God's Word. So, this is why a proper understanding of how to interpret God's Word so that you can pull out the meaning of God's Word and not have it be mixed with your history and your culture. Now, there's some good things about your history and your culture. Hopefully, you've grown up in a, a Christian culture with a, a Protestant history. And it's the five solos of the Reformation are a part of your, your history and culture. But there's things that are wrong about your history and culture. And we're not perfect. We're not there yet. But the Word of God is perfect. And our goal as a family, as a group, as a church, is to become more perfect in our wisdom and understanding. And, and you need to take what has been done in previous generations and move the ball forward instead of falling back and going in the wrong direction. So you've got a role to play in the formation of the culture of your generation and your children and your grandchildren. And I'm trying to pass on to you what is best from the culture. And then you've got to use the Word of God well to be able to uh, preserve what we have, but then go even further. That's, that's the, the big idea in culture buildings. So... The Word of God is protected from the culture around it by inspiration. That's the foundation. Inspiration and inerrancy. 
Because the word of God is inspired, because it's breathed out from God, therefore it is without error. And if you rightly handle the scriptures, then you can have a yardstick by which to measure all statements and to know whether they are true, whether they are false. And all statements are either true or false. Those are the only two options. There's no kind of true. Study the laws of logic. And one of the basic laws of thought is a statement is either true or false. That's, that's the law of the excluded middle. So the word of God is true. And by understanding it properly, we can judge all statements to be true or false. And that's very important. And then how do we know that we have the word of God that hasn't been lost? Well, that's where textual criticism comes in. Like I've been talking about in Mark chapter 16. Are verses 9 through 20 a part of the Bible, or are they not a part of the Bible? Well, that's the work of textual criticism, and I'm doing my most rigorous study in textual criticism that I've done in a long time because it's so relevant and important to the ending of the Gospel of Mark. So that's part of protecting the Word of God from the history and culture. Are verses 9 through 20 just a part of the history and culture of the early church, or is it the Word of God? That's the question. That's what textual criticism is designed to do. And so we must use equal weights and measures to be able to make a fair evaluation and properly weigh the evidence. You don't count evidence, you weigh evidence. There might be a thousand pieces of evidence on this side, but they're all light, they're all insignificant. And there might be one piece of evidence on this side, but it outweighs all the others. But how do you know if it outweighs them? You ought to have proper weights and measurements. You got to know how to think and evaluate evidence fairly and so that you can weigh it. We don't count evidence, we weigh evidence. And some evidence is weightier than other evidence, but how do you know which evidence is weightier than others? You got to have your mind trained to be able to do that. And that takes a lot of work. That's the point of self-education. So then canonization tells us what's the word of God and what's not the word of God, kind of like criticism. So that keeps it separated from the history and the culture outside. And then up here, you've got the inductive method. And that's what I'm teaching you to do when I give you assignments like the observation paper. You're inductively learning about the scriptures. You're gathering observations. And from your observations, then, you make conclusions about what the passage is teaching. You don't start with a conclusion and then gather a bunch of information that supports your conclusion. That's deductive reasoning. We do the inductive method where you gather lots of information and then you let the information lead to your conclusions, to your, your big idea. And so in order to use the inductive method, it's built upon reason and spirituality. So on one side, we've got the rational base. On the other side, we've got the spiritual handle. So you've got to be a spiritual person. You've got to know what that means for one thing. What does it mean to be a spiritual person? And you've got to be a rational person. Some people are all reason and no spiritual, and some people are all spiritual and no reason. It's good to be both. Be reasonable, be rational, and be spiritual. When you've got those, and you're studying the Bible inductively, according to good hermeneutical principles, and you know what the Word of God is, then you're able to exegete the text. That's the point of the second half of our class in our apologetics and worldview. Now, apologetics, let me remind you, is the defense of the faith. And apologetics has both a, an offensive and a defensive aspect. The offensive side of apologetics is where we show that the world's philosophy, the world's theology, the world's worldview doesn't work. That it's inconsistent. That it 
is leading to disastrous consequences. And that's what How Should We Then Live was all about, was to show you that the, the philosophical basis of materialism, the worldview of the philosophers, has led to the death of philosophy, the death of ethics, the death of art, the death of culture. And so we don't want to go that way. That's a bad way. And, but we do want to positively demonstrate with this defense of the biblical worldview. But in order to know what the biblical worldview is, you've got to be able to exegete the word of God. We build our worldview from God's word. And if you're defending what the Bible says, then you're defending truth. But if you're defending just what Christians say, well, there's a mixture there of truth and error. And so when we're talking about the Christian worldview, we're not just talking about what do Christians believe, but really we're trying to get to what does the Bible say? What does God's word teach? That's the worldview that we want to defend because that's the worldview that is true. That's the worldview that is perfect. Now, do Christians largely have a biblical worldview? Yes, but it's not perfect. And enemy, the enemy will always exploit the weaknesses. He'll find the weaknesses and he'll exploit them and he'll attack them. And the stronger we are in knowing what our worldview is, the better we'll be able to defend it. And the more that we're living out our worldview, the more it'll be obvious to the world around us as well. So the Study to Show Yourself Approved book goes along so well with the How Should We Then Live book, because How Should We Then Live, it gives an apologetic for the Christian worldview, while at the same time destroying the worldly worldview. And then the Hermeneutics book, it helps us to build that Christian worldview. So that's why we put these books together. They're a wonderful complement. One is focused on apologetics. One is focused on how do we build our worldview from the Word of God. So chapter 10 covers principles 20 and 21 in our book. And the first five have to do with principle number 20. So let's take a look at the exam booklet, principle number 20. The principle here is distinguish between the rapture and the return. And this isn't so much a principle, but it's more of an application of a principle. And so I appreciate what the author is doing, but I, I think he's, he's focused a little bit too much on this particular principle. And he probably takes it a little too far. I'm in general agreement with him. Don't get the idea that I'm not in general agreement with him. Uh, but he's, he's very dispensational. And I'm very dispensational too, but I think he's putting more weight on it. And his book isn't as much just a pure book on hermeneutics, but it's, it's also kind of an apologetic for dispensationalism, which is fine. Uh, I think there's a time and a place for an apologetic on dispensationalism. But I'm really trying to teach you guys just the basics of hermeneutics. And uh, dispensationalism, I think, is just one part of that. And it's a, a large part of his book, probably larger than it needs to be. Because really what we're dealing with when we're talking about this principle, the a principle of distinguishing between the rapture and the return, we're really still on this one. We're still on number 18. Comprehend the biblical covenants, which is related to recognizing the fact of progressive revelation. So that revelation has progressed, and the covenants of God have progressed. And so we read the Bible in light of the covenants, and so we relate to God through the new covenant, and that's going to help us then to distinguish between the church and Israel, because Israel was under the old covenant, they're a nation. 
Uh, the church is not a nation. It's people called out from every nation. Here in America, we're part of the United States, but we're also part of the church. In Ecuador, they're part of the church, but they're also Ecuadorians. They're part of that nation. So there's a difference between being a part of a nation and being a part of the church. And that is evidenced in the covenant. That in the new covenant, as we have in the New Testament, God wrote it for people who were going to be a part of all nations and all times and all places. And that's why he didn't give us holidays. Because nations have holidays. And we have the 4th of July here, but in China they don't have the 4th of July. And so God didn't give us holidays because we're not a nation. But in the Old Testament, they were a nation, so he gave them holidays. And just many things like that, okay? And we live under the laws of the United States, so God doesn't have to give us, well, here's what the, the law is for the church, because we're not a nation. We don't enforce the laws. Instead, we have the law of Christ, which governs the individual and governs the church, which is different from governing a nation. So... This is all tying into the biblical covenants. That's what I'm trying to get across here. And that as, as Revelation has progressed, God has revealed himself through the covenants. And if you have a proper understanding of the biblical covenants, which is very important, and I'm glad that he emphasizes, then it will lead to things like uh, principle number 20, which is really just an extension of differentiating between the covenants when you do it, but when you understand the covenants properly. All right, so number one. When it comes to teaching about the future, all Christians agree that what? Uh, those of you that have your work done this week, uh, what, what letter did you have for number one? Just raise your hand. Yep. D. D. Right. So all Christians agree that Christ is coming back to earth. And this chapter stated that very clearly. One thing I appreciate about the book is he does emphasize the, the unity that Christians have on many of these subjects, even though there's some differences in the details. The you know, most important thing is that true Christians recognize that Christ is coming back. Some false Christians have denied that over the years, and uh, you can basically tell a church that is a true church from a false church as to whether or not they have a practical belief that Christ is coming back. If maybe it's on their doctrinal statement, but nobody ever talks about it, the preacher never preaches on it, the people never think about it, it doesn't affect the way that they live their Christian life, probably not a, a thriving church. And they're probably, well, let me just say, probably heretical. <clears throat> but if there's a living expectation of Christ's return among the people and in the preaching, that's probably a sign of a church that is a real church. Um, it's not what makes them a real church, it's just a sign. Uh, being a real church. There's a difference there. Now, look again at number one on your exam sheet, and it says, the first one, letter A, we will all meet Christ in the air. Now, while the chapter didn't state that all Christians agree on that, it's actually true that all Christians do agree on that, uh, because the Bible says it. So if you're a Christian, the Bible says it, you agree on it. You can open up your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 anytime you want. You don't have to do it right now. And you can read there that it says that there's going to be the loud trumpet, and that uh, Christ is going to come, and that we're going to meet him in the air. And so, all Christians agree we're going to meet him in the air, uh, because the Bible plainly says it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Um, but then what happens after we meet him in the air is what we disagree on. Uh, whether we go to heaven uh, for uh, the seven years of the Great Tribulation, or whether we come immediately back to earth for the starting of the, the kingdom of God on earth. Well, that's the difference uh, between them and, of course, other positions as well. 
But everyone agrees that we're going to meet him in the air. So I would accept A as well for an answer for number one, even though the text specifically pointed out D as the answer here. Whoever wrote the exam uh, kind of missed, missed something there and actually accidentally put two correct answers. Number two. The doctrine of last things or the future is termed what? B. Raise your hand. Yep. B. B. Right. Uh, it is eschatology. Everybody say eschatology. Eschatology. Eschatos means last, and ology means the study of, the, the subject matter. The subject matter, the study of, the last things is eschatology. Um, now, there's a, a word here also that is a fun made-up word, futurology. And futurology has the, the, the concept of future in it. So I thought this would be a good point to talk about page 107. Open up your Bibles to page 106 and one of oh, Bibles. Open up your books. Uh, Bible actually means book, so technically I'm still right. Uh, so open up your book here to page 106 and 107. Hopefully they haven't changed the numbers. Is the chart for the outline of Revelation on page 106 in the it's new 128. edition? 128? They changed the numbers too. All right. Oh yeah, because they put the exam questions in there. So that would add a number of pages to it. Uh, so page 106 in this one, 128 in the new one. And there you've got the outline of Revelation. And what this is an outline of is a futurist interpretation of the book of Revelation. So, if you're not a dispensational theologian and you understand the covenants differently from the way that, that I'm teaching is the right way to understand the covenants, then you might not have a futurist view of the book of Revelation. You might read the book of Revelation as something that already took place in the early period of the church. And so that would be a preterist interpretation. Let me write that up here. Uh, preter means past. We don't use that prefix very much. So a preterist interpretation is that, that you're looking at this as already in the past. And then this is in comparison to a futurist interpretation, which says that the book of Revelation is prophecy that's going to take place in the future. Now the book of Revelation is the last book in the Bible. And it's a book in the Bible that gives a special blessing to those who read it and understand it and keep the things that are in it and puts a special curse on those who add to or take away from the book of Revelation. And so the book of Revelation says it's pretty important. And if it's the word of God and it says it's pretty important, then it's pretty important. And so understanding it accurately, is this something that's already happened or is this something that's going to happen in the future, is not an insignificant question. Now, just because Christians disagree on it, sometimes we want to make it an insignificant question because we're more concerned about, well, let's just all get along. Let's just all hug it out. And, you know, you can have your position. I can have my position. It doesn't really matter. No, it does matter. It doesn't mean we're supposed to be rude. It doesn't mean we're supposed to be arrogant. It doesn't mean that we're supposed to be unloving. But we're supposed to pursue the truth in love, respecting those who have different views, while at the same time respecting the truth more. You can love your neighbor and love the truth. And we want to be fair in evaluating the preterist interpretation of the book of Revelation and the futurist interpretation of the book of Revelation and not just say, well, I'm going to believe my position because it's my position and I don't want to change and it's uncomfortable. But instead, we pursue the truth. And if we don't know, because... You're just a teenager, and you haven't spent years and years studying and building your knowledge of Scripture. Then just say, I don't know. I'm open to being taught. 
Being open was the first principle that we have. Up here. Meditate, pray, obey, and be open. So if there's godly people who hold to the predator's position, then don't just say, well, they're all ungodly idiots. Uh, but instead, recognize, well, this is a complicated subject, and this is something that we need to pursue the truth on in love, and to respect, while at the same time, pursuing the truth. You don't give up on the truth and just say, well, it doesn't matter, because love is all that matters. No, love and truth got to go together. So, a futurist interpretation of the book of Revelation is important, and if you don't believe me, well then, be open to the idea that it's important. Because I'm older, I'm wiser, I've done a lot of reading, a lot of study on this subject, and I'm telling you it's important. Now, number two. The doctrine of... Oh, we already did number two. Sorry. Uh, where are we? We're on number three. Trace. Yeah. Number three. The rapture and the return of Christ are separated by the blank. Who's got an answer there? D. Elise? D? Uh, they are separated by the tribulation. Yeah, so you look at the chart, and you've got the rapture on the book of Revelation, and then you've got the return, and they're separated in between by the tribulation. So the chart shows you the answer to that. Now, that's the dispensational answer. That's the futurist answer. It's not the preterist answer. Okay, So there's, there's a difference there. Number four. Before I go on to number four, let me say this as well. He says on page 105, uh, which would be, no, the chart's on 105. On page 104 in this book, which is a couple pages before 128, so it'd be like 126, 125. Uh, where you've got the paragraph that says, in the dispensational system, the rapture is the return of Christ for his bride, the church. And then the second sentence, it says, the word rapture is not used in the Bible. Now, uh, open up your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. What he should have said, which would be much more helpful, is the English word rapture is not found in the English translations of the Bible. Um, because when we're talking about words in the Bible... Well, there's many different translations, and really what we're talking about is what Greek words are in the Bible, because the Bible was written in Greek. So it doesn't really matter whether an English word is found in the Bible. What matters is, are the Greek words, and what is the proper translation of those Greek words into English. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, let me show you what I mean by this. You come to the last part of the chapter, and it's on the coming of the Lord. That's the title for the English Standard Version for 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. And then, as you read through the paragraph, you see that in verse 16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. All Christians believe that, because that's what it says. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up. Notice that, that verb, caught up, together with them in the clouds. Do you know what rapture means? Look it up in the dictionary. It means to be caught up. Uh, you, you pick something, you catch it up. Yeah, that's, that's a rapture. And so, the English word rapture is not used in the Bible because it's a word that hardly ever gets used. And, and Bible translators don't like to use words that nobody uses. They like to use words that are common. 
and so they used the word caught up. But you could translate the, the Greek word harpazo as rapture. It's a, it's a legitimate translation from one language into another in this context. And so, just because somebody says, well, this word's not in the Bible, that, that doesn't mean anything. What is significant is, does, is the concept of that word, is the meaning of that word correlative to the meaning of the original Greek or Hebrew in the Bible? That's where word study becomes important. And you don't get misled just by somebody saying, well, that word's not in the Bible. Now, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. And the word Trinity, even the concept of Trinity, is, is not a specific word in the Greek or the Hebrew of the Old Testament. There's no Greek or Hebrew word that corresponds to the, the meaning of Trinity, where you've got three and one together. Uh, it's kind of an oxymoron. Triune means three and one. Well, three is not the same as one, and one is not the same as three. But, so, you know, we think, well, there's three persons in one God, so we came up with this word, Trinity, of one, per one God, three persons. Well, that, that, there's no corresponding word in the Bible to that, in the Greek or Hebrew. So that's a proper thing to say, that the word Trinity is not in the Bible. That's true. But the concept of Trinity, the teaching, the doctrine of Trinity is in the Bible. You can show that the Bible teaches that there's one God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And so the concept of one God is very clear in the Bible. But also very clear in the Bible is that you've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as distinct persons who communicate with one another, who love one another, who are distinct persons. And yet each one is God. So that's where the doctrine of the Trinity is in the Bible, even though the word Trinity is not in the Bible. See what I'm talking about? Now, another area where this type of Thing comes into play is the word homosexual. And people will say, well, the word homosexual is not in the Bible. Or it wasn't in the Bible until the 1940s. And then, you know, they, they decided to put the word homosexual into the Bible in these lists of sins. The word is not the important thing. The English word is not the important thing. The important thing is the Greek word, arsenokoites, which means homosexual. Now, the English language has changed over the years, and so the English words will... Uh, you know, start to be used in English translations because they're starting to be used in the English language. We don't use the King James Version of the Bible anymore because the English has changed in its meaning so much. And old words have changed meanings, new words have come into play. And so while it's true that the English word homosexual was not in the Bible until the 20th century, that's because you do a study on the history of the word homosexual, it wasn't in use in the English language until the 20th century. But now it is, and so now we use it to translate the Greek word, which means homosexual. But see how people will just lie and mislead on, you know, this word is not found in the Bible. Uh, so all of that, just from uh, what he said there about the word rapture not being used in the Bible, not a very helpful statement from our author. Um, all right, so where are we? Number five, to not distinguish between the rapture and the return of Christ... A, B, C, or D? Raise your hand. What's the correct answer for number five? Yeah? I had... I skipped number four? Okay, number four is B. So you're right on that. The church began with Pentecost and will end with the rapture. Now again, that's the dispensational view. That's not the covenant theologian's view. So, just want to make sure you understand that with this book, you're getting the dispensational perspective. Which I think is the right perspective, um, but 
I'm not as ultra-dispensationalist as our author is. Number five. To not distinguish between the rapture and the return of Christ is what? What's the correct answer to number five? Yeah. A. That's right. Uh, letter A. It means that you're spiritualizing the kingdom prophecies in the Old Testament. So, the... The, the ones who are dispensational, who make a di differentiation between Israel and the church, and therefore distinguish between the rapture and the return, you see, one thing leads to another. And so you've got to examine your presuppositions. You've got to get back to, well, what is the proper understanding of the biblical covenants if you're going to be able to properly distinguish between Israel and the church, and then to properly distinguish and interpret passages about the rapture and the return of Christ. They're all connected. One thought leads to the next thought. And so that's why the, the foundational thoughts are the most important, because they have the, the biggest impact on other things. You can spend time arguing about the rapture and the return with the covenant theologian, but what you really need to do is talk about, well, the biblical covenants. Um, and how has, how has Revelation progressed? What's our relationship to the Old Testament? Alright, so then principle 21 is... One of my least favorite principles in the, in the book so far, submit to the hierarchy of scripture. I don't like the way he's talking about this. I agree with him in principle, but I just think it's very sloppy uh, and confusing in the way that he presents it. So I'm going to try to improve upon principle 21 as we go through the second half of the exam questions here on that. So number six says this. The principle submit to the hierarchy of scripture means that A, B, C, or D. What's the right answer? Yeah, right, D. Now, I don't like the way the answer is stated, but that's the answer that they're looking for, is, is D. Some books have greater authority for the Christian than others. Ew, could you state it any worse than that? Um, we're talking about the Word of God here. The Word of God is authoritative because it's the Word of God. There's not some words of God that are more authoritative and some words of God that are less authoritative. That's a terrible way to, to describe what he's trying to get across here. All of the word of God is equally authoritative. Let me state that clearly. Uh, what he's trying to say here is that some parts of the word of God are more directly relevant and some parts of the word of God are less directly relevant. That's what he's really trying to communicate in principle number 21. This hierarchy of scripture has to do with relevance, not with authority. Now, all of God's word is relevant, but some of it is more relevant to our particular situation than others, more directly relevant, okay? It's all relevant, but some of the relevance is more direct, and I'll explain that hopefully as we continue. And again, this just goes back to the same thing, uh, uh, understanding the biblical covenants. If you get this, if you get principle number 18, then this hierarchy of scripture idea is going to be clear without all the muddled confusion that he's throwing into the discussion. <laughs> all right, so number seven. Uh, Christians don't sacrifice lambs and goats today because... Yeah? C. C, right. Uh, C is Old Testament ceremonial laws are subject to the doctrine of the New Testament. Now, again, he's, he's using this hierarchy language, like the New Testament is superseding the authority of the Old Testament. And that's not the right way of thinking about our relationship to the Old Testament law. It's not that the New Covenant has a greater authority than the Old Covenant. It's that the Old Covenant was for a time and place. And we are not in that time and place. Um, newer Covenant 
replaces the older covenant. That's really the idea that he's getting across here. Uh, Elise, when you were younger, you had an earlier bedtime. And so if you were, you know, five years old, you got an eight o'clock bedtime. Well, now you're 15 years old, almost 16. You got a, a 10 o'clock bedtime or whatever it is. My wife works on bedtimes. Um, and so Elise doesn't come and say, well, dad, you told me that my bedtime was eight o'clock. So I have to be in bed by eight o'clock. Well, that was for a certain time. We're not in that time anymore. Now we're in a different time and you're, you're, I'm giving you a different rule. It's not that this rule is more authoritative than that rule. It's just a different time. This was authoritative then. This is authoritative now. Uh, so don't think of it as a hierarchy, as more of a, a progressive revelation. If you get this idea of progressive revelation and biblical covenants, everything he's trying to say in these chapters makes sense. Um, all right, number eight. In the matter of doctrinal differences, blank, what's the answer? Number eight, Daria? C. Eight is C, yes. The Gospels are subordinate to the epistles. Again, that's the answer he's looking for. I don't love the way that this whole thing is framed. Um, the Gospels are a historical record of God revealing himself in the life, in the person of Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus obeys the law of Moses and he goes up to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover, that's not saying, well, Christians, you need to obey the law and you need to go to Jerusalem and celebrate the feast of Passover because Jesus fulfilled the law and kept the Passover feast. So Christians who follow Jesus should also keep the Passover in Jerusalem. That's a misunderstanding a misapplication of the historical record of Jesus's actions. When Jesus was alive, God had still maintained the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. And so Jesus related to God through the old covenant because that was the covenant that God had established for that time. Now the old covenant has passed away and we're in the new covenant. And so the epistles are written so that the church can know how are we supposed to live now? And keeping the Passover is not what we are commanded to do. In fact, the New Testament explicitly says that all of those festivals, all of those things that were part of the nation of Israel are not a part of the church and that we shouldn't try to make Christians live under that old law. So it's not that the, the gospels are subordinated to the epistles and that the gospels are more authoritative uh, or that the epistles are more authoritative. It's that the epistles are written uh, under the new covenant. And since the new covenant is what we live under, they're more directly relevant. So everything that's in the gospels is still authoritative truth. But what is the truth that that is communicating is in light of the progress of revelation and the new covenant. Okay, so that's, that's kind of what we're trying to communicate here. Number nine, the Sermon on the Mount is what? What's the correct letter for number nine? Elise? D. D, right. Nine is D. And D says, the Sermon on the Mount is subject to the epistles when it comes to doctrinal differences. And I would say, there are no doctrinal differences between the Sermon on the Mount and the epistles. And this is something that dispensationalists, ultra-dispensationalists, have kind of screwed up. I remember when I was down in uh, Florida for a few years and I was teaching a home Bible study 
and uh, the pastor of our church was kind of an ultra dispensationalist. And I wanted to teach the Sermon on the Mount. And he was like, well, Timothy, you have to be really careful about teaching the Sermon on the Mount because that's the Old Covenant, and we're living under the New Covenant. And I said, well, I'll do my best. So I taught the Sermon on the Mount, and there were parts where he didn't like the way that I was teaching it because he's kind of got this mindset that, that this guy has, that the, there's doctrinal differences between the Sermon on the Mount and what we have in the epistles. And I didn't do a good enough job of, of uh, subordinating the Sermon on the Mount to the, the doctrine that's in the epistles. I don't think that's the right way to look at it. So dispensationalism needs some, air, some improvement, uh, and it's not a perfect system. And that's why I do my best to try to weigh things objectively. I try not to just repeat what I've heard or what I've been told, but I, I use critical thinking to analyze. Is this really the right way to think about it? Is this the best way? Is this the right terminology? Is, are we weighing the evidence properly? And, and that's what you need to learn how to do as well. Um, so that you can disagree with what I'm saying and that you can present a good case for it and, and we can make progress towards the truth. And, and we're not trying to just maintain a certain doctrine. We're trying to maintain and grow the, the body of knowledge, the body of theology that we have. Don't think that the church has arrived. Yeah? We, we need to continue to progress. So, the Sermon on the Mount is subject to the epistles when it comes to doctrinal differences. There are no doctrinal differences. Um, what they mean by doctrinal differences is that it seems like when you're reading through some of the gospel passages, like the Sermon on the Mount, that you're going to be justified before God by your works. Uh, there seems to be a conflict between what Jesus teaches on right standing before God versus what Paul teaches on justification by faith alone apart from works. For example, Jesus said, uh, if you don't forgive your brother, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you for your sins. And so people say, well, it seems like Jesus is saying your forgiveness before God is dependent upon your work of forgiving others. Whereas in the book of Romans, it seems like your forgiveness before God is, is determined once for all by faith in the finished work of Christ. So it seems like a doctrinal difference. It's not a doctrinal difference. And I could spend you know, an hour explaining to you why it's not a doctrinal difference, but that's not this class. Uh, you have to come to a different class with me for that or another good teacher. Principle number 21, submit to the hierarchy of scriptures. We're to the last question, number 10. Where should we read to learn the doctrinal meaning of Christian water baptism? Correct answer is? I put down D. Yes, D, the epistles. Um, now, it's not because of the hierarchy of scripture that we go to the epistles in order to understand the doctrinal meaning of Christian baptism, but it's because the epistles are a different type of literature than the Gospels and the Book of Acts. The Gospels and the Book of Acts are a historical record of what happened. The epistles then are going to interpret and apply the truth of what God did in history to what does that mean for us. So the epistles are didactic. The Gospels and the Book of Acts are historical records. It doesn't mean that there's not teaching in the Gospels and in the Book of Acts. There certainly is. But the type of literature is narrative, historical narrative, by and large. And so the, the epistles are written with a fuller revelation of God's will in the New Covenant 
where the Holy Spirit specifically says, okay, here's what I want you to learn from all the things that I told you about in the Gospels and Acts. So that's why the epistles are the best place to go to learn the doctrinal meaning of water baptism. Not that we don't learn anything about water baptism from the Gospels and Acts. We certainly do. And it doesn't contradict what's in the epistles. But the epistles are the clearest revelation of how we were supposed to understand, what we were supposed to get out of our reading of Gospels and Acts. Okay? It's like the inspired commentary on the history. So we know that we didn't make the wrong application. Alright, so that's principles 20 and 21. Uh, could be stated better. Really, we're still just talking about understanding the biblical covenants and progressive revelation. Hopefully that's helpful. Now, in the time that we have left, I want to talk about your lexical and syntactical homework. I gave you two weeks for this because it's something that should, you should put a fair amount of time and work into. So if you haven't started on it yet, you're behind. Um, I sent you the email that had examples of lexical work and syntactical work so that you could get started on it. But in class today, let me talk about some of those examples to help you make sure you, you get what I'm trying to communicate here. So, open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. If you haven't figured it out, you should be bringing your Bible to class now that we're in the hermeneutics part of the class. Or your phone if you like to be digital. So when I was in seminary, I took a class on Romans, and I chose Romans chapter 7 for my exegetical work. Remember, exegesis is the process of drawing the meaning out of God's word. Eisegesis is when you're pouring a bucket of water into God's word and you're contaminating it with, with your history and your culture and your ideas. We would want to avoid eisegesis. We want to practice good exegesis. And so they had an exegesis of Romans class in seminary. And I chose Romans chapter 7 because it was the part of Romans that I understood the least and I really wanted to understand more of. It's notoriously difficult. And so I didn't give you all of my lexical work or syntactical work on Romans chapter 7. I just picked out a few examples from my paper. But I actually ended up with like 50 pages of uh, problems and solutions on this passage because it's just so difficult. And there's so many different ways of reading and interpreting. And like every word is going to impact how you read and the next word. And it's just really... Uh, Probably the biggest challenge in exegesis in scripture is, is Romans chapter 7. But So I just gave you a small sample of the work I started on this passage way back uh, in 1999. So in Romans 7 verse 14, you can look at that in your text, Romans 7 14. Um, he uses the word spiritual. Romans 7 14, we know that the law is spiritual but I am of the flesh sold under sin. So you recognize well, this word spiritual is kind of a key word in this sentence. It's, it's one of those words that is very important to the meaning of the sentence. And spiritual is one of those words that it's difficult to understand, well, what exactly does Paul mean by this word? And so this is a great word for a word study, for a lexical study. A lexicon is another word for a dictionary. And so lexical work is studying the words. What does the word mean? And I brought with me a dictionary today. And this is my dictionary that was given to me by UNL. I got the UNL symbol there on the front when I was a, a freshman at UNL. I got my, my name on it there. And it's been used a fair amount, as you can tell. It's well bound, but still got a lot of wear. 
And when you're looking into a dictionary, you'll notice that many words have multiple meanings. And so I just opened up here to the page for work, and they've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten different meanings for the noun work. And then for the, the verb, they've got uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven different meanings here for the for the noun, for the verb. And so it can have a noun form, it can have a verb form, and it has many different meanings. Important to understand this when understanding lexical work, when understanding word meanings, the word meaning is determined by its context. So you don't just get to pick whichever meaning you want out of the dictionary. It's like, well, let's see, I'll pick number five, and that's going to be the meaning here. No. You determine which meaning is the meaning of this word in this context by examining the context. And so, in your word studies, if you use a, a, a dictionary, which you should use an English dictionary. The Bible is written in Greek, but you don't know Greek, you know English. The English translators have done a good job. They've taken Greek words and translated them to English words. And so, you can look up those English words and figure out which of the various meanings of this English word is the translator using here? The translator is not using all of them. He's not using two or three of them jumbled together. The translator is using one meaning of that word in each use of that word. There's a singular meaning of the word. And so you have to figure out which meaning it is. That's what a dictionary is good for. Dictionary is also good to help you think through the meaning of a word, even if there's only one meaning. It's still useful to look it up in a dictionary because the dictionary definition is very careful. It's very precise and it will help you. You might have a feeling for the meaning of the word, but you might not be able to put it into words yourself. Well, the dictionary puts it into words for you. And so one of your key tools in being a, a Bible teacher is a dictionary. And use the English dictionary. And now after you learn Greek and Hebrew, if God calls you to that, then you can use the Greek and Hebrew dictionary more. And so I don't use my English dictionary as much. I'll still use it when I'm trying to figure out the right English word to use or try to figure out, did I use the right English word? I'll be listening to my sermon and I'll use a word and I'm like, oh, is that the right use of that word? I'll look it up so that I get better and don't make the same mistake uh, in the future. So I still use the English dictionary and most people use their phone, the internet, and just make sure you're getting a good dictionary online. There's, you know, slang and jargon dictionaries that are not really helpful. Uh, in a Bible teaching class, we're looking more like a Merriam-Webster's, like a, uh, an academic type of dictionary. Um, so, spiritual. So you look up the word spiritual in the dictionary, and you try to figure out, does the English dictionary have a good definition for the word spiritual that fits the context of what Paul is writing about here? Normally it will. Sometimes it doesn't. Because the Bible is kind of a specialized field and the English dictionary is not always written for those who are doing Bible study and doesn't have everything that we use in there all the time. Now, when I, uh, I should have made a copy of this handout, I didn't think about that. Anyway, for 714, spiritual, I've got a quote from one of the commentators, Godet, and so you read the commentaries, and as you're reading the commentaries that I've given you over here, you look for lexical work. The commentaries will define the words for you. But if it's an important word, like spiritual, and the word spiritual here is going to have a, a huge impact on how you read this passage and how you understand Romans chapter 7. So Godet, one guy says, one scholar, 
that spiritual means agreeable to the impulse or tendency of the divine spirit. Uh, so someone who is spiritual is someone who is agreeable to the impulse or the tendency of God's spirit. And that's, that's a good definition. And then you've got to compare and contrast it with the passage and think it through. Is that what Paul is saying? Is he right about defining it that way? And you look it up in the dictionary and you study the word spiritual using the concordance. You go through other uses of the word spiritual in the book of Romans. The near context is the most important context. Now, if Peter uses the word spiritual, that can be helpful, but that's a different context, a different person. You kind of want to, you know, look at Paul first and look at the book of Romans first. The near context is the most important for understanding the meaning of a word. How does Paul use this word? Different people use different words differently, even within the Bible. Just because Moses uses the book of life to refer to one thing doesn't mean that's the way John is using the book of life and the book of Revelation. I think there's a, a progress even in the, the use, the meaning of the, the phrase book of life within the Bible that is lost on a lot of Bible interpreters. So good lexical work is, is key to being a Bible teacher. Now, not all of you are going to be called to be Bible teachers. Some of you are probably called to be Bible teachers. And so those of you who are called to be Bible teachers, this part of the class is more helpful to you than those of you who are not called to be Bible teachers. But... A little bit of knowledge of Bible interpretation and Bible teaching is good for everybody, even if that's not your lifelong calling. Like, everybody learns a little bit of math, even if you're not called to be a mathematician, right? Everybody learns a little bit of science, even if you're not going to be a medical doctor. So everyone can learn a little bit about Bible interpretation, even if that's not going to be your job in the church. Um, and then, so read through the lexical analysis carefully. This is part of your homework. I didn't explicitly say it, but I implied it by including it there and telling you, here's examples so that you can know how to do your lexical work. So you've got to read it through carefully and learn from example the type of things you're supposed to be doing when you do your lexical and syntactical work. Now, one thing I want to point out is that you're going to come across difficulties that you don't know. One guy will say this, another guy will say something different. And you'll be like, well, I don't know which one's right. Well, that is a problem. That's a, a problem in the lexical work. And so you'll go through and you'll notice that I gave you several examples of problems in Romans chapter 7 uh, from the examples. One is the law. And the problem is, are we talking about the will of God in general? Or are we talking about the Mosaic law in particular? And some Christians will say one, some Christians will say another, and it's, it is very important to understanding Romans 7 to get that right. You need to know what does Paul mean when he says the law, and Christians disagree. And so that's where you've got to do a lot of work, and you've got to weigh the evidence, and you can't just weigh the evidence that you like heavier than the evidence that you don't like. You've got to be open, you've got to be teachable, you've got to let the evidence lead you to where it goes, and to resist your inclination until it's proven to be right. And not proven by unequal weights and measures, but proven by justice and fairness to both sides of the argument and the debate. You see that? So, you've got to identify problems, and then you can put that in your lexical work. That here's a problem. Does it mean this, or does it mean that? And then, I'll show you how to solve those problems as we go forward. Right now, we're just identifying the problems. Not everything's going to be a problem. Most of the time, the commentators will agree, the word studies will be clear, and it won't be hard to figure out the meaning of the words. But you want to understand the words the best you can, and the more you put into it, the better your understanding will be. If you just pick two or three words and you do kind of a half-hearted job, 
Well, you get what you put in. Uh, your Bible study won't be very powerful because you didn't put much work into it. But if you study all the words in depth, carefully, and you actually put real work into it, well then your Bible study is going to be that much better. You're going to get out what you put in. It's a principle in all work. Work is good. Don't be afraid of work. Don't be afraid of hard work. You put in hard work and it's rewarding. You put in hard work for this class right now and you'll have a Bible study that you can use for the rest of your life. You don't put the work in, you get nothing. And I don't care whether you get nothing or whether you get something. I mean, I do, but you should care more than I care. And so you don't need me driving you to do the good work. You should be self-driven to do work. And that's part of being an educated person. You don't, you're not given an education, you take an education. You put work into your own education, your self-education. Alright, so then the syntactical work, this is all taking a lot longer than I thought it would. The syntactical work is looking at the grammar, looking at the relationship of words to one another. So the lexical work is the meaning of the word itself in its context. The syntactical is looking at the grammar of the passage, and that involves uh, the conjunctions, the connecting words, what's the role of the connecting word in the sentence. It involves the, the tense of the verbs. Is this a past tense verb? Is it a future tense verb? Is it a present tense verb? Is it a command or is it indicative? And so you're, you're looking at the grammar, the, the form of the words, uh, because the same root word, like work, can have different endings on it. Works, plural. Works, singular. And the, the grammar of the passage will determine the different endings and the, the form of the verb and all of that. So you're, this is where you're analyzing the grammar of the passage. And so, for example, uh, now we're not in Romans 7 anymore, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And we don't have time to, to get into that. I wish we did. Uh, a lot here that I wish I had time to teach you. So you're going to have to do it on your own. You're going to have to read carefully the lexical and syntactical examples and observe what it is that you're supposed to be doing in your lexical and syntactical papers you have questions, ask me questions. Also, got all the resources over here. Got the commentaries, got the study Bibles, got the historical works, got the concordances, got the encyclopedias, got the maps. Uh, I'm going to leave the English uh, dictionary over there just to remind you that you should be looking up English words as well. Uh, I'm also adding here a Bible history of the Old Testament. I thought I needed a few more Old Testament works over there. And then also, since so much of the Bible is history, this is a great book for studying the Old Testament. Uh, also, I brought with me a commentary on the New Testament use of the Old Testament. Uh, one out of every 27 verses or something like that in the New Testament is a quotation from the Old Testament. And so this commentary will give commentary on just about every use of the Old Testament in the New Testament and help you understand it. So if your passage is a New Testament passage that quotes the Old Testament, look it up in here and you'll find some really helpful stuff. Alright, so that's all we have time for, but be welcome to stay, stick around and quietly use the tools and the resources that are here. Feel free to come early next week and use those tools and resources. Um, since I haven't gotten as far or as fast as I would like, I will consider giving you another week on the lexical and syntactical work for your papers. Raise your hand if you think you need another week for the lexical and syntactical. Two, uh, not just this week, but another week after that. Alright, so we're going to have the lexical and syntactical paper be due not next Friday, but the Friday after that. It's going to put us on kind of a bind as far as the schedule goes, but I'll figure that out. 
so that we can get our Bible studies done by the end of the semester. I'll send out an email with that information. Make sure you double-check last week's email where I sent you the examples of the lexical and syntactical work that I'm, ex I'm expecting you to do. It doesn't have to be as academic as seminary work, but you can work up towards that. Thank you, Pastor Jim. You're welcome. Thank you.